I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. Hello, and thanks for pouring us back in your ears. This is episode three of We Made a Beer, the podcast in which we, two beer novices, find out about beer by brewing it, drinking it, and chatting to some folks who really know their stuff. Coming up in this episode, we practice the art of tasting with Ubrew's Tash. Should I be doing something special with my tongue at this point? Yeah, I mean, let's not be too poncy about it. Jane Payton, founder of School of Booze, explains how beer has helped to shape civilization. Well, there's an argument that the desire for beer stopped humans being nomadic and made them settle in one place. Now, if you have a settlement of people, you start getting civilization. And we talk to Evan, founder of the Colonel Brewery, about what the future holds for craft beer. Last week, I think uh, there was a picture of Hillary Clinton pouring some craft beer very badly. A couple of elections ago, Obama had a beer, but it was um, like a Bud Light sort of thing. Now, craft beer, whatever that word is, that has spread in the States to be normal enough that somebody can do it without sounding like they're being a a hipster or a poser or, or whatever. Basically, the positive associations with it for a politician have outweighed the negative ones. Just to recap, all of our brewing in this series is happening at Ubrew an open brewery where you brew the beer. You become a member, use their knowledge and equipment, and brew up whatever your heart desires. Last week, we made our second ever beer, a lager. And actually, it was a bit of a disappointment. Um, It's got some interesting flavours. Not necessarily in a bad way. Um, It doesn't taste like lager. (laughs) I get apple juice on the the nose, um, which reflects what Wilf just said for sure. Um, And, you know... A lager is a difficult style to take on, specifically your second time, so I commend you for that. Um, and I, I'd say try again. Keep, keep going, but it's, it's not I, ready. I would say leave that in the bottle for a while. Mm-hmm. I don't think it's time to try again yet. We'll revisit that lager in four weeks and find out what's going on in the bottles, but we already feel that it's not going to turn out to be the kind of lager we actually really enjoy. Having now tasted loads of great lagers, we kind of wish we'd gone for a more rich multi-brew. The mistake we made there was not doing our research before the brew. So this week, we're changing that. We met up with Tash in Ubrew to chat about, and more importantly this time, taste some porters, before we took on our own brew. We also learnt how to compile a beer recipe, something that's going to come in very handy over the course of this series. So a porter is a dark beer. The, the kind of two main styles of dark beer are stouts and porters. The line can be muddy between them, but essentially a uh, stout is normally creamier. It's normally a higher percentage of dark grains, um, whereas a porter is a little on the drier, crisper side. Um, It's still using those black and dark grains. So we've got a couple of porters in front of us now. Uh, Can you take me through the tastes and the smells, what we should be expecting? So here we've got the Colonel Porter. So Colonel does kind of the standards really, really well, exceptionally well-brewed beer. So give it a sniff. Quite clean on the nose. 
Should I be doing something special with my tongue at this point? Like, you know, in uh, wine, how you sort of swill it around your mouth? Yeah, I mean, let's not be too poncy about it. I mean, if you want to suck it through your teeth and swill it about, go for it. If you just want to, if you just want to drink it. Usually the best thing to do, I think, it's the same with wine, is to leave it in your mouth for just a second so it sits on your tongue. But then just drink it. <laughs> um, so coffee predominantly on this one, which I'm sure you guys are getting as well. A little bit of chocolate and caramel on the bottom. Comes through a little bit of bitterness at the end, but not too much. It's quite soft, actually, bitterness-wise for a porter, isn't it? Yeah. Um, and that's entirely due to, to hop use. Mm, it's really nice. And what's the second one? So this is from Magic Rock, which is in Huddersfield. Um, and it's a coffee porter. So lots of porters taste like coffee because of the types of malt that we use. But this is actually brewed with coffee beans. So they've used lots of fresh roast coffee beans in the brew. So we swirl, swirl and sniff to begin with. Getting a lot of coffee out of that. It smells <laughs> it's lovely. It's spicy on the nose yeah. as well. So it almost tastes like a cold brew coffee. Yeah, that's really, really coffee-ish and really noticeably different to the kernel. Yeah, the coffee's a lot cleaner as opposed to the roasted, burnt flavour of a, of a chocolate malt or a black malt as the actual coffee beans themselves give a much cleaner flavour to the porter. Yeah, I get a lot less sort of bitterness on the finish of this one. Yeah, it's really nice. Like Good, huh? <laughs> so how are we going to make our recipe? What we generally use is a website called Brewer's Friend. What Brewer's Friend does basically is it does all of the... Um, the calculations for us. So once you've brewed a few beers, you kind of get an idea of, of what you're going to put into it, what different grains are going to achieve, what different hops are going to achieve. Um, but what this does is it, um, we put all of our fermentables, so our grains, our barley, in, um, and it gives us an idea of what the colour will be, what the alcohol percentage will be. Um, we put our hops in, it tells us what the bitterness will be, so we can get an idea of whether we're making something that's true to style. So what this has done, we've put five kilograms of marisotta, half a kilogram of black pattern, half a kilogram of chocolate. Um, that's giving us an ABV of about five and a half percent. Cool, so we'll leave it there, I think. Um, that's a fairly simple um, porter recipe. And in terms of hops, with a porter, um, we're going to do a bittering hop addition to balance out the sweetness. And we'll do one later hop addition, but we do very little for, for aroma and flavour because this is a, it's a malt-forward beer. So what hops are we going to use then? Well, I thought we might have a wee look upstairs and see what you guys wanted to do. We have a wee look at what we've got. Nice. Are we going to smell things and choose them based on smell? Let's do that, shall we? It's basically how I choose most things in life. <laughs> Food, beer, life partners. <laughs> Should we head upstairs? Yep. <laughs> Depends whether you fancy doing a British porter or an American porter. What do you think? Should we go British? Let's go British, yes. Let's use some classically British hops then. Um, Whitbread Golding. So that one here. Can we sniff it? Please sniff away. Let me take a big whiff. So British hops are generally a little more subdued than American hops. So you'll get a bit of grass. I'm getting farm. Yeah, you'll get farm, you'll get grass. We call it in beer, and it's not undesirable, the, um, the horse blanket flavour, which is not a bad thing. Sounds delightful. It sounds horrible, but, um, but yeah, so, so quite, um, quite earthy. Mm-hmm. Uh, second hop edition is going to be Bramling Cross. So another British hop. We're going to use that at 15 minutes and then also at five minutes. If you're interested in the brewing process itself, then take a listen to episode one, when we took you through the whole journey from beginning to end. But for now, while we go and turn our grain into mash, our mash into wort and our wort into porter, we're off to do a bit of history learning and find out how Britain came to be such a hub of the beer world. Earlier this week, I had a little Skype chat with beer historian Jane Payton founder of School of Booze. 
Hi, this is Jane Payton. I'm a beer sommelier, a beer writer. I drink it. I talk about it all the time. And I'm also the instigator of Britain's National Beer Day, which happens on June the 15th, and it's known as Beer Day Britain. So you quite like beer then, really? That is an understatement. (laughs) (laughs) Super. Um, Can you give us a potted history of beer in Britain? Well, beer has been consumed in Britain for at least 4,000 years. When written history started coming about in the early medieval period, then ale was absolutely crucial to existence. It was part of your daily diet. It gave you nutrition. It was also a source of water. So ale basically was a lifesaver in many ways. 1362 was the earliest written evidence of hops coming into England. Now, something with hops in was a different drink that was called beer. And that's what people drank in continental Europe, whereas in this country, it was ale. So So, was ale really sweet then? Not particularly, because you could flavour your ale with um, bitter herbs, rosemary, yarrow, all sorts of different things. It was um, something called groot. So you could make your beer bitter, but hops are much better for for making your beer bitter. And they also give your um, beer a preservative quality as well. And then once hops started to be used in in what became beer, then um, ale started to be eased out. So we stopped drinking ale probably 17th century. You would probably see the last of ale being brewed. And from then on, it was beer with hops. And different styles of beer started to be developed. We started getting the porters and... Later on in the 18th century, we got what became India Pale Ale. It wasn't originally called IPA, by the way. It was called October Beer. And uh, brown ales, stouts. Stout was actually a strong version of a porter. And then we start getting the bitters, which are basically a domestic version of India Pale Ale, which was an exported beer. And then in the 18th and 19th century, Britain was the brewing powerhouse of the world. Wow. London had largest breweries in the world over you know a couple of centuries Whitbread was one of them Barclay Perkins these aren't names known anymore and Whitbread don't even brew beer anymore they now make coffee you know Costa Coffee and Premier Inns what also Britain did was spread the love of beer around the world because we had a, a navy which was either a military navy or a trading navy and those ships all carried beer because it was our national drink so we come up to the present day and um, Britain is still renowned as one of the great brewing nations of the world. Mm. More styles of beer currently brewed around the world were first brewed in Britain than those of any other nation. So Britain has had the biggest effect on, on beer and influencing beer around the world. We read an article that said beer has been brewed for at least 10,000 years. And for most of that time, it was women, actually, who were the brewers, uh, which is quite different to the sort of scene nowadays. So why was it that women were the brewers and when did it all sort of change? Yes, the earliest evidence of beer being brewed is around 10,000 years ago. It was brewed by women because it's cooking, basically. I describe making beer as like cooking, but with bigger vessels and more washing up. (laughs) Because what you're doing, you're combining a food source, which is barley or wheat or whatever you're using, and you're making a recipe out of it, and then you're actually cooking it. So women were in charge of the home. That was their domain. They were in charge of the food and drink for the family. 
men were out gathering firewood, they might be hunting, they would be going out doing other things. There were very defined roles. There were no breweries around at the time. Beer was something that you made in the home for the consumption of your family. Women stopped being the, the primary brewers of beer fairly recently in the history of beer. And it's when beer became a commercial entity. It became something you could sell. Now, you needed to make that in a brewery because you needed more beer to sell, basically. And that's when men started to be uh, the primary brewers. And in Britain, that started happening or mid to late 14th century, so AD. So women started to be edged out of brewing and men started being the brewers. Jane Austen knew how to brew. Oh, brilliant. As if she wasn't like enough of a legend already. Now, if you go down to Chawton Cottage in Hampshire, where Jane Austen lived for the um, last few years of her life, there is a little brewery in there. It, well, the, wood, the brewery would have been in one of the outhouses. They did have ha- a housemaid who probably would have been brewing the beer, but Jane Austen would have known how to do it, as women of her, her um, position would have known anyway. Mm. It's just one of, it was like um, knowing how to cook, basically, or knowing how to knit, or yeah. things that women used to do that were part of the women's accomplishments. Yes. It's a shame that in school they don't teach you that as part of like uh, food technology. That's a good, really good idea, isn't it? Maybe we should um, talk to the education secretary about that. And <laughs> I, for it. one, would have really enjoyed that. I mean, it's maybe slightly controversial. We'd have to go down the non-alcoholic brewing route, but still, would be really fun. Um, what styles of beer are most associated with the UK? So you've talked about the porter and you've talked about the IPA, but any other ones that are really commonly associated with Britain? Yes, I'd say barley wine, bitter Bitter, by the way, is really a pale ale, mm. and it was a, a lower alcohol version of an India pale ale. Brown ale, mm-hmm. stout. I think when people talk about British beer, they, they more often than not talk about real ale. So I wondered, could you tell me the difference between real ale and craft beer? Is that clearly defined or...? No, it isn't. And in fact, nowadays, it's really hard to describe what craft beer is. Mm. Originally, craft beer meant that it was made by a small independent brewery. Nowadays, it usually means that it's a beer that's quite vibrant in its flavours, usually quite a lot of hops. It might be an an imaginative sort of hybrid of styles, or it could be something that doesn't fit into any category or it's the attitude of the brewer it's really hard to define real ale is beer that has not been filtered of the yeast or carbonated so real ale is in its natural state Hmm. and that's how it's served do you think camera has contributed towards the rise of craft beer then when the craft beer scene came into this country around 10 years ago it was already a very mature beer scene Now, Camera, what Camera had done was to protect beer as this incredible drink that people respected and that people wanted to go to the pubs to drink. Basically, without Camera, the pubs would have closed, I think, because what was around at the time was the horrible... It's called belly washing, some of the Camera people, but it was really awful, filtered, kegged beer. I won't say any brands, but they're still around, and they are appalling. I mean, they're not worth washing the floor with. So people wouldn't have gone to the pub anymore to drink these awful beers. So camera kept the pubs open. They kept this absolute love of beer and this real celebration of beer around. So when the craft beer brewers started brewing, there was already loads and loads of beer fans anyway. And people just, oh, great. There's some new great tasting beers around. Sure. So you mentioned 10 years ago, the craft beer revolution really started here in Britain. Who were the major players? Who were there on the scene? Are there any people that I would still recognise perhaps now? Yes, 
The first one I would say is Meantime. I, I don't know when Thornbridge started, but they, they've been around. They were some of the early ones. Thornbridge Roosters, they're based in Knaresborough. They're still around. Brewsters, based in Grantham in Lincolnshire. And the Colonel, I'd say. They, they were the earlier ones. Now, of course, there's so many of them. Yes, I mean, it's just a fantastic time to be a beer drinker, absolutely. Yeah, definitely. You know so many random facts. I wondered, could you give me some of your favourite beer facts, like anything that I may have never heard before, but it's just super interesting? Well, there's an argument that the desire for beer stopped humans being nomadic hunter-gatherers and made them settle in one place. They were settling in one place because they were growing barley or wheat or whatever they were using to make the beer. And consequently, they needed to be there to care for the crops, to make sure they were growing okay. Now, if you have a settlement of people, you start getting civilization. you start getting things like poetry, law, religion, education, all these things that create civilization and create a community came about because people were staying in one place rather than being nomadic. When you first said that, I thought you were going to say because, you know, people were drinking beer and just getting lazy and just chilling out, sitting down. Well, They're like, no, so, I don't want to travel. Yeah, actually, you know, some historians have said that as well, that people started to get lazy and they started putting weight on as well, by the way. This is what historians believe. So, yeah, they got lazy and um, they also this also brought in the idea of capitalism as well because... It wasn't a sharing economy as much anymore. It was like, me, 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 that's mine. Yeah. So it did change humans forever. Huge thanks to Jane for all that interesting info. So, that's Britain's beer scene of the past. On to Britain's beer scene of the present and future. We met up with Evan, founder of the Colonel Brewery, one of the trailblazers of London's craft beer revolution. Evan is widely renowned for having one of the best brewing teams in London and for being an all-around nice guy. Now, it was a very busy day in the brewery when we popped over, so apologies that it does get a little bit noisy from time to time. Evan has some really, really interesting things to say, and he started by telling us about the inspiration behind forming the Colonel Brewery at a time where London's beer scene was significantly quieter than it is today. I'd been working for Neil's Yard Dairy, selling cheese. That was about 2007. They sent me over to the New York to help one of their customers open a cheese shop over there. So I was in New York for a couple of months. And all the people I was working with would take me out for beer in the evening and they introduced me to what beer was in the States and it blew my mind. And the odd thing is, you know, I mean, you know, with every cheese I would eat, I would know the name of the person who made it, what type of animals, what they were feeding on, what type of pasture, what sort of the terroir, the history of that recipe, the reason it was made this way, how it changed during the seasons, you know, because we cared about what we did, we would, you know, you learn all these things automatically. And then you'd go out drinking beer. I didn't know anything about it, nor did I care. Going over to the States, people would take me out drinking and they'd say, well, this beer is made by this brewery, the brewer to this sort of recipe, this sort of reason, these are the hops used. And so actually it was more as much the American, I suppose, attitude towards things as much as the beer themselves. And uh, there was nothing that I had come across in London that was giving me that same feeling. And I came back from and looked around a bit and you could find a few different pubs here and there making a few or selling a few interesting beers. But at that point in time, you know, Young's had just left. So there were maybe only, I mean, in terms of standalone breweries, Meantime had opened four or five years before that. And um, Fuller's had been there for a couple hundred years. Budweiser have that plant on the Mortlake. There were about eight brew pubs, I think, as well. Zero Degrees were there and, and Brody's and a few others. So there wasn't much happening in terms of being things being brewed in London. And there was still this tradition uh, in, in the pubs that I did find that were did have good beers that were being brought in from around the country. 
there was still a particularly English mentality of either A, having all, you know, might have 20 different beers on and you go, great. And then you realize there are 20 different 4% brown bitters, mm. which is slightly dull. And then you'd find one that was really nice. And then you'd come back and then it, it would have finished and they would have put something else on. And you go, well, that one was really good. Why don't you have that on again? And there's like, oh no, we just change them all the time. And then you get very infuriated very quickly with the sort of mentality that wants something new rather than wants something good. To keep growing, you need to have new things coming in all the time. You need to feel alive and develop. But novelty at the expense of quality is um, something that I find tiring after a while. I'd like something good most of the time. I'm happy with that. What's it like brewing in London now? So you currently are in kind of the heart of the Bermondsey Beer Mile. So you're surrounded by people who are doing craft beer. Does that make it more difficult because you've got more competition or does it actually make it slightly easier because you've already got that audience who are coming to you because they want craft beer? Um, is it harder now? I don't know, not at all. So yeah, I'd mentioned the number of breweries in London when I came back from the States. We started brewing about two years after that and by then Sandbrooks had opened up in South London, but that was it. So there wasn't much of a market which was fine. We didn't really know what we were doing. So for us to be able to stumble along slowly, we didn't tell anybody we were there. We just made beer and slowly it kind of trickled out. Um, nowadays, if you open a brewery, it's easier in one sense because the market is there. It's possibly harder in one sense because the market is perhaps a little bit more full. But in London, it still isn't. I mean, there might be 80, 90 breweries in London, but most of us are very small. So in terms of the numbers of breweries, the numbers are huge. But in terms of the volume of beer produced, it's, it's very small. I mean, part of the growth is very exciting. But also, if people are trying, say, lots of new breweries and they come across a couple that are producing stuff that's not very good, then that reflects badly on the rest of us, you know, because everybody's going, well, this London craft beer, I had three pints in a row and they were all various shades of vinegar or whatever. Um, and that does happen. A, when, when breweries are, are small and young and growing, then some, it's just a mistake that happens. Some of them maybe don't have the same quality standards of, as others. So... We can't make any generalizations about the whole brewing in London. But um, Partisan, who are our closest brewery that way, and Brew by Numbers, who are our closest brewery that way, are, are amongst our best friends anyway. So to have people like that around when you need to borrow something or they borrow something off us, or the, the, there's no competition amongst small brewers. I mean, if there is, then they're doing something wrong. The, the problem is if you come in with a mentality of competition, you're, you're already thinking on the level of, well, I want to be as big as Tesco's and I'm going to fight Sainsbury's. I mean, that's where competition comes into play. On a small level when you're working at, at any sort of scale as a reasonable human being, none of us are making a drop in the ocean compared to what's out there and the benefits from being good friends with your neighbors. I mean, that happens anyway. It's really hard to hate people down the road because mm -hmm. they're nice guys, you know. Of course, they make different decisions about what they want for their beer and what they want for their business. But um, it's, you know, together we're making, we're not fighting over tap handles in that sense. You know, we're making the, the, the world of craft beer bigger. So... I mean, and even people that we might not like very much are doing that as well. You know, the people who are selling into the supermarkets, the people who are selling into massive chain pubs, you know, with craft beer. Um, Would you be comfortable to say who you're on about there? Oh, somewhere like BrewDog. I mean, they've made it very clear in their strategies that, I mean, they have their bars, which are really successful. And they sell lots of beer in supermarkets. And actually, in that sense, it's great because there's a whole in the middle where they don't really reach, which is the smaller independent places that we do. But for people who go to supermarkets or to certain chain pubs that they supply to be able to get a, you know, if it's a good batch of punk IPA, then, then you know, everybody's mm. happy. You know, I end up in places that I go, 
oh, Jesus, what am I doing here? I'll have nothing to drink. And you go, oh, okay, there's some bottles of punk in the fridge. Yeah. Great, I'm happy. They reach places that you know, other people don't because they work on a scale that none of the rest of us can do. And that does help introduce people to, to beer that they might otherwise not drink. I don't have any desire to get to that scale or be that person. You know, I we can't aspire to be everything to everybody. But um, I think they have done a lot to help you know, raise the level of British brewing across the across the board. They've done something quite interesting in the equity for punk scheme that they run. It's an interesting way of raising money. What do you think of that? I, mean, I think for them and the way they work and the sort of people that they have supporting them, it seems to make perfect sense. I mean, it, it's amazing how successful that has been. Um, personally, we, we're not looking at growing in that sense. You know, we're quite comfortable here. And if we did want to grow, we can probably finance that ourselves. Um, there are a lot of people I know who invest in BrewDog and are very happy they've done so and they will possibly make something back on it in the future. And if they don't, they've still got good discounts and they're happy to be part of it. And I think it's brilliant. On the other hand, I'm not sure. It, it, well, I mean, hmm, it does create a link between the shareholder and the business, which in one sense is very good because feeling strongly about something you care about is great. On the other hand, the relationship isn't equal. There's a power imbalance slightly on which one side can slightly take advantage of another so in one sense are you taking advantage of people's generosity and kind of fandom yes but people are enjoying that as well the other thing that it does show i think that's quite different from how we work is that you're kind of selling an image and brewdog do that very well i don't like that i try as much as possible not to have an image so it's very you know that sort of system that sort of selling of an idea is not what we're about we would rather just say nothing and go and just just maybe ask me a question i'll just point at a glass of beer and go you know, drink it there's your answer what do you need to know so what does a new craft brewery need to do to stand out and you guys have done it particularly well um without concentrating on formulating an image or having cans that have got loads of pictures on or employing a designer well, no, I think you've explained precisely why I can't answer that question because I have none of those things and done none of those things or we have done none of those things. I think maybe a part of the question is it depends on how you approach an issue like a label. Um, I suppose, generically speaking, there's two ways of doing it. One is having a concept and applying that on what you do. So you either do it yourself or you have a team or a, a marketing media you know, designer to do that for you. And then the ideas become, you know, they can be beautiful and abstract and conceptually hold together nicely and you stick it down on top. But then you're, you're taking something outside and putting it on something that already exists that old, that doesn't always fit well. Or you work with, well, this is what I have. In this case, it's beer. And the ways that you go about working create what the label becomes because, so that's more sort of ground up. And, yeah, so that's how our label came about. It's a slow process of evolution from homebrew labels that I used to have when I started homebrewing. Um, and so it just grew from there until it reached the point that it, it was, I mean, it may still change. Yeah, I've not ever given any thought to labels other than I get shocked by some of them sometimes. <laughs> as pared back as, as your labels are, I think they are still very noticeable. Well, what, all we want the labels to say is it's what's inside that's important. You know, we've put our effort on the inside. You know, there's no tasting notes. There's no us telling you how this is going to taste because you all have taste buds and you can decide that for yourself. Do you think that the current interest in craft beer, so at the moment I feel like I've been swept up in a movement, is it eventually going to plateau slightly? Well, you can kind of do a bit of both, um, but there is a long way to go. Um, I mean, I'll give you two examples from the States. One, I mean, when I was staying in New York in 2007, everywhere in Brooklyn that served alcohol at least had Brooklyn lager. So no matter where you were in the crappiest place that you would not want to be, you had something that was decent to drink 
and this place might be selling Guinness and Fosters and, uh, and all sorts of macro crap, but they would still always, there'd be a tap of Brooklyn Lager in there. And that level of, is kind of happening in American stores where you go in and you'll have a Sierra Nevada six pack in every 7-Eleven across the country. That will happen here, but it's not there yet. We don't have anybody quite at the scale yet. Brewdog be the closest example at this point, but you know, the, there is that movement towards at least having one good beer everywhere beer is served, which be a happier world. <laughs> the other thing is that like last week, I think uh, there was a picture of Hillary Clinton pouring some craft beer very badly. But I think like, if you think of like a couple of elections ago, Obama had a beer, but it was um, like a Bud Light sort of thing. You know, that was the mass beer. Now craft beer, whatever that word is, that has spread in the States to be normal enough that somebody can do it without sounding like they're being a, a hipster or a poser or, or whatever negative associations, basically the positive associations with it for a politician have outweighed the negative ones. Mm -hmm. So now, you know, it's a uh, craft beer, something local, and it's now common enough to make you seem like normal blue collar sort of thing to be doing. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, to get 30, to get 20, 20, 20, to get 20, 20, to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here, and it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at hellofresh.com. <laughs> So, there you go. As soon as you see Theresa May holding a can of Gamma Ray, you can rest assured that the craft beer revolution is stepping up a gear. Not entirely sure how good that's going to be for the reputation of Beavertown, however. Big thanks to Evan for letting us come into the brewery for a chat and a look around. We really enjoyed talking to him. Such a wise fellow. Really taught us lots. At the beginning of this episode, we started brewing our very British porter. As with all of our beers, we're getting the guys from Ubrew to taste our final product and put them through the same rigorous taste test they do for all of their beers. Here's how our porter went down. So Wilf and I kind of looked at it and saw it coming out. We're like, that looks great. There is head retention on it for sure. Um, people struggle with that in porters. And it is really dark. Yeah, I, I, quite, I, I quite like that. And mm -hmm. it's a good thing. I think it's a really nice color. It's all of that black patent for sure working. It's kind of funny because it starts smooth and then it finishes tangy. But mm -hmm. I like it. It's good. Yeah. yeah, you've done a good job with that black patent. It can quickly become very tangy and acidic and almost overpoweringly coffee and stuff. But I think this might even improve further with age. For your third beer ever, this is pretty damn good. Yeah, like it. What are the hops you use? There's some residual hops at the end. Um, so we used Whitbread Golding yeah. right at the beginning and then some Brambling Cross at the uh, end. We kept it really British. That was, the, that was our British. theme. I kind of want more brambling because it'll impart like black currants and stuff like that at the end. So if I were to change the recipe, I'd, just, I'd whack a load more of that at the end. But it is quite well balanced. It's just, it's showcasing the malts really. It's quite nice. Is this going to pass the hard standards of the Ubrew taste tests? 
Yeah, uh, to be honest with you, it's a little bit standard, but I would say it's sellable. So yeah, we would stock it. And yeah, I think in a couple of weeks, it'll be even better than it is now. So yeah, cool. So fantastic stuff there. We're pretty chuffed at this stage. It's the first beer we've made that we both really, really enjoy and that just about passes the Yubrew taste test. And more great news is we've just hit the halfway mark in our brewing adventure. How do you think it's going so far? I reckon we're getting there slowly. We're three beers in and we've got a drinkable IPA, a currently undrinkable lager, and a actually half-decent porter under our belts. So, a mixed bag. But I reckon I'm starting to get all the different steps of brewing in my head now. Yeah. If you think about it, three weeks ago we had very little knowledge of how beer was even made. So now we're kind of confidently strutting around a brewery and not knocking things over Mm -hmm. and vaguely coherently making beers like it's pretty cool actually and once you've nailed all the steps of brewing it all does get a little bit easier and then you can just focus on improving techniques next week we get even more hands-on up until now the lovely tash our we made a beer brew monkey slash actually employed you brew brewing assistant has been developing our recipes for us next week we'll be making a wheat beer and we're going to do some research and then conjure up the recipe all by ourselves exciting very exciting and terrifying <laughs> if you want to get in touch with the we made a beer podcast tweet us or instagram us on at we made a beer you can also visit the we made a beer website at we made a beer.co.uk to check out our recipes and our lovely blog if you enjoyed this episode please do subscribe and if you really really liked it please do spread the word and leave us a review also in exciting news our friends at ubrew are offering we made a beer podcast listeners 20% off brew courses with the code ubrew20 thanks for listening we're going to crack on and drink a load of porter now mm-hmm. bye 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 hold up what was that Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com.